Well, the kids are already downstairs in church. Uh, downstairs, uh, we don't, for many years, we, we released the kids. We took an opportunity to greet those around us. And uh, it, one way to look at it was it was an interruption in the service. Another way to look at it is it always raised the, uh, the emotional temperature of the group. When we sit quietly for too long, we just sort of uh, cocoon and slide away and doze off. I don't know if it's a weather change, but my wife and I, we've been so sleepy lately. Oh, my word. Men's breakfast almost did me in yesterday. It was, it was such a good morning, though. I wish more of you could have been out to it. Uh, next month, I'm going to schedule it. I already talked to him this morning. I've already scheduled it around Lance Gabori's schedule. Lance and any others who are good at the grill because we are going to have pancakes next month. So it's going to be wonderful. I'm inviting you in advance. I'm already making myself hungry, so we're going to be brief in our message this morning. Last week, we began a series of messages in First Peter. In fact, it's the letters of Peter because we're not going to slow down at all. We're going to move from first into second Peter. And as I mentioned last week in my introductory comments, you will find as you read that letter, it's a very different letter in tone. And if you read it in the original language, as some people can, I can tell a few words here and there, you know, from my uh, Bible school Greek classes. But it's obvious to people who speak Greek fluently and study it that it's written by two different people. Now we say, well, how can that be? They're both the letters of Peter. Well, Peter mentions at the end of 1 Peter that his secretary, his amanuensis, his co-writer is Silas, Paul's longtime fellow preacher, Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison and so forth. Well, Silas writes beautiful Greek. He is a fluent speaker. But it seems when we come to Second Peter that the old fisherman from Galilee puts his own pen to paper because the Greek is of a much rougher form. It's uh, common Greek. It's like the marketplace Greek that Peter would have spoken in Galilee of the Gentiles, selling his fish to Gentile uh, Greek-speaking people because that part of the country was uh, settled by Alexander the Great. When his army rolled through, he planted cities with the uh, cashiered soldiers who were wounded. He retired them out of the army as he proceeded on his conquest and left behind Greek language and Greek culture. So they're going to be very different. It's fascinating, the two letters of Peter, uh, how similar and yet in some ways how different they are. We saw that Peter was writing to you and I, as the screen says, the theme of Peter is that we are sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home, we're just a passing through. And we looked about that. Uh, He's writing to those who are scattered in a diaspora, a dispersion of believers across the Roman world. And he focuses the first letter on five Roman provinces. Some the Apostle Paul had visited previously and planted churches, and others like Bithynia, the Holy Spirit had put up a roadblock in Paul's ministry and would not allow him to go there. And so Peter is writing to them, and through them he's writing to you and I as well. Now the letter is going to focus on the fact that we, while we're in the world, as we saw last week, we are not of the world. The world, as the Bible speaks of that word, cosmos, as the fallen human system of mankind apart from God. That's where we began 
But we're no longer part of that system. We have left the kingdom of darkness and through faith in Jesus moved into the kingdom of light. And so we're sojourners. We're pilgrims. We're pilgrims in this world. Now it brings with it challenges. And that's the other major theme of Peter is that the believers he's writing to are undergoing trials and suffering. Trials and suffering. And he'll just touch on it briefly. We'll look more at it next week as we continue in 1 Peter chapter 1. But today, we're focusing on one of the positives. Before Peter talks about the struggles, the difficulties of being a Christian in this fallen world, he encourages you and builds you up with the incredible positives of having faith in Jesus, of being that spiritual being on a pilgrimage in this lost and hurting world. Well, the positive, simply put, in knowing Jesus is that you're born again. I've called today's message New Birth because this is what the passage speaks of, that your salvation is characterized as a new beginning. The old is left behind we know that it, we carry that old nature, <clears throat> that fallen, sinful nature. The New Testament uses the Greek word sarks, an ugly word for an ugly concept, sarks. It's flesh. The New International Version translates it as fallen or evil human nature. That's the old us, the old nature that we seek daily to put to death and live in Christ. For we're able to be new because through faith in Jesus, you have new birth. We're talking again about salvation, your salvation. And friends, if you don't know Jesus personally, you may have gone to church or not gone to church. You may say, well, I, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You know, it's a vague understanding. Friends, unless you know Jesus personally, unless you know him and have put your faith in him, you're lost. You still bear your sins. And you're on the broad road that ends in destruction. The Bible warns us again and again that Jesus is the only way. There's no other name under heaven appointed unto man to be saved but the name of Jesus. Jesus doesn't share that with anyone else. Human religions are not all the same. All roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. New birth in Christ. That's our salvation. And if you'd like to know more about it, I'd love to sit down and talk to you so that you can be sure that you have Jesus living in your heart, that you have experienced new birth. Some people don't like to talk that way. I remember years ago talking to people from another part of branch of Christianity and they looked down on those of us in the Protestant branch, the low church branch. They had a nickname for us. It was like they couldn't call us backwards hillbillies. Well, they could. And they probably did when I wasn't around. But to our face, they called me a born-againer. You born-againers. I said, well, I'll wear that. What's wrong with that? 
Jesus said, you must be born again. But they didn't like that. They said, no, none of that, that touchy-feely, born-again stuff. I just go to church. That's all I need to do. But the Bible says you must be born again. New birth is the mark of our salvation. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. We begin with a eulogy. <laughs> you say, a eulogy? Wasn't that like a week ago Friday as we celebrated Elmer Kosturki's home going and his son Ralph gave a wonderful eulogy? Eulogy is the Greek word that this passage begins with. Eulogos. It means to praise. It means to raise up. To remember in praise. It literally means blessed. Blessed is the one that you speak of. Peter begins by saying, praise, eulogy, blessed, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What an incredible and full description of your salvation. As we looked at the previous verse, verse 2, which had a Trinitarian formula, one of the important verses of the new testament that speak of god as father son and holy spirit active in your salvation in the same passage here again is another incredible description of what god has done for you graciously in salvation god's gift god's gift of new birth that's what we're speaking of new birth God gave it to you as a gift. Praise be to the God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy has given us. For God so loved the world. While we were yet God's enemies, Christ died for us. That's grace. That's mercy. He gave us not what we deserved, but He gave us what we didn't deserve when He gave us salvation through Jesus. It's a wonderful passage. It's one that if you want to pick out passages and verses to memorize and to commit to memory, this one is a wonderful one to do that. Well, it speaks of new birth. New birth. Well, that's one of the essences of your salvation is that something new has come into being. It's not just the old you with a new coat of paint and maybe a few shingles slapped on the top. It's something completely new you were a, a being who was mortal you were a slave to sin and death you had no future but in christ you're a living being spiritually alive adopted into the very family of god through faith in jesus that is an incredible thing in second corinthians chapter 5 Verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Leave the old behind. Peter and Paul are in full agreement as led by the Holy Spirit that you are something new. Let those old things fade away and fall behind. Don't keep going back to the old ways of life. Don't let that have its hold on you because you are new through the new birth into a living hope. 
It's wonderful to experience something new. Born again, new birth. Jesus himself in the foundational passage, it was night so nobody would see him. And one of the Pharisees that people all looked up to, Nicodemus, he came to see Jesus at night because he had questions. Of course, that's the powerful passage in John chapter 3. Nicodemus starts his visit with Jesus by complimenting him. Oh, Jesus, he says, you're awesome. You have to be from God. If you're not from God, how else could you do those amazing miracles? You know, he lays it on thick. Instead of rising to the bait with this praise, Jesus, oh, thank you very much, you know, being all humble. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus cuts through Nicodemus' open gambit and he goes right to the heart. This is how Jesus replies to that comment. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. In Greek, amen, amen. Verily, verily. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. (laughs) Nicodemus must have just said, what hit me? Must be born again. Nicodemus continues, How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked, Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus straight out, you have to be born twice. First of water, physical birth through your mother. Secondly, born of God, born of spirit. And it continues to say that this comes to us through faith in Jesus, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It comes through faith, this new birth. So we have new birth, new birth, into living hope. Oh, I so appreciated the worship team singing that wonderful song this morning, Living Hope, because this is what your new birth has brought you into. You're not born into hopelessness. Sure, you're a sojourner. You're an exile. You're a stranger in this world. But it's not hopeless. Among all the people of this world in these dark and crazy days, you as a follower of Jesus have hope. And by hope, biblically, that's not wishful thinking. That's not, oh, I sure hope so. No, that's blessed assurance. You have assurance in these uncertain times. Nobody else may have, but you do. Living hope. I love it in, in the Greek, it's lively. It's alive. It's not just kind of got a pulse. It's lively expectation. Your hope should be evident to all. It always saddens me when I'm in facilities visiting seniors. Some of the seniors are so lively. They're so engaged. You know, whether they're chatting over tea or putting puzzles together, you know, looking at pictures of family, talking on the phone, going to visit. There's some. There's some that for various reasons have nothing left in front of them. And they're quiet and vacant. And they often sit all day and just look out the window. 
but their internal eyes are turned back because life's behind them and they have no hope, no expectation of what tomorrow brings. Hope is an incredible thing. When you are young, everything is in front of you. Life is laid out before you. What will life hold? It's like this. It's like anything. But as you make decisions and go through life, it seems that our hopes and dreams, they narrow and narrow. And for some people, it's like they're gone. There's nothing left in front of them. Not so with you. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, speaking of our hope, Paul says, I hope you can understand the hope you have as a believer. He says in verse 18 of Ephesians 1, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. That's incredible. We'll get to that inheritance in the next verse. But we have a living hope. What do you hope in? Is your hope still in the Lord? No matter where you're at in life, do you have lively expectation that God is not done with you yet? You may even be at a point in life where you have retired from your vocation. But God's not done with you. Have lively expectation of what tomorrow holds, what next chapter is that God has for you, what influence you can have through your prayers and through your relationship with the emerging generation. Have lively expectation. Don't lose hope. Lost hope is a tragedy. So many stories of lost hope. I'll share one with you briefly. Oh, I love history. It's the story of people. In the early 20th century, there was a craze about the last places on earth to be explored. So many of the great explorers of that time set their sights on being the first human to set foot at the North Pole of our globe. As you know, the North Pole is not a piece of land. It's just the spot in the ocean. But that ocean is covered by a polar ice cap. And these crazy explorers with their instruments wanted to get there at the North Pole and be the very first ones. Oh, they worked hard at it. And about 1909, two explorers, Cook and Perry, both claimed to be at the North Pole. Cook was discredited. His observations were off. Just a number of things were wrong with his claim. And then Admiral Perry, supported by the National Geographic Society, you heard of them with their yellow magazines, he claimed he was the first there. In retrospect, he probably didn't make it either. He probably didn't. But they were so anxious to get there. Well, when it was reached in 1909, those who were not able to get there, they had to turn their sights somewhere else the last place on earth. That became the South Pole. A much harder proposition. Because the South Pole, as you know, is a continent. The only continent without human habitation. It's like Alberta in winter all the time. It's like our, our cold snap all the time. It is a rough, rough place. Unless you're an emperor penguin, you don't want to be down there. 
these men turned their attention to it. Unfortunately, the First World War was brewing up, and so it was hard. The countries were all saber-rattling. There was one individual, though. Oh, his heart was set. All his hope was placed, not on the North Pole. He had never been one of those crazy Norwegians wanting to go north. He wanted to go south. His name was Robert Falcon Scott. He was a captain of a battleship in the British Royal Navy. And he was anointed to be the first to the South Pole. Oh, he took a big group of people there. He took, he took not only enormous amount of people and supplies to that continent, but he took, believe it or not, tractors. There was no such thing as skidoos. They invented the first tracked snow vehicles for that expedition. Tracked, big tractors were going to pull their supplies. And if not tractors, ponies. Nothing says snow like ponies, does it? Well, but these were Siberian ponies. These were ponies from Siberia. Unfortunately, the people he sent to buy ponies in Siberia, they weren't horse people. <laughs> and the locals cheated them and gave them the worst of the horses. So he gets down there and he has ponies and he has horses and they start their expedition after about a year on the continent and they're pushing hard because they hear and have a visitor from another expedition. A man who was cheated out of the North Pole. His name was Roald Amundsen, a great Norwegian explorer. He said, well, if the North is gone, at least I'll try the South. And he came there after Scott, but he was traveling light. And Scott's expedition was big and wieldy. So Scott, they set out and they went with the tractors until all the tractors broke down or fell through the ice. And then they went with the ponies and the ponies all died. And they had some dogs, but the dogs didn't make it. So what they ended up doing is strapping four men into harnesses and pulling a sledge. Not a sled, not a dog sled, a sledge. A big, heavy sledge with big, wide runners weighing hundreds of pounds. And these four men would trudge, not a mile or two miles from their base, they had to walk 843 miles through minus 40, pulling a Volkswagen behind them. <laughs> well, needless to say, it was hard and it took long. And the final push to the South Pole, because they made it, and I have a picture of them at the South Pole, the final push to the South Pole was hard. The last 350 miles or so in the upper plateau, they had to climb a glacier and pull that heavy sledge. And along the way, they found the first fossils ever found on the Antarctic continent. And so they had to load those big stone fossils and drag them along too. But they made it. January 1912, they roll in about January 15th to 17th. But when they get there, they see a flag flying on top of a tent. It's a Norwegian flag. Inside the tent was a letter to Scott from Roald Amundsen. He'd gotten there a month before. You see, Amundsen was brilliant. He traveled light. He'd studied with the Inuit. He took dog sleds and skis, no tractors, no ponies, traveled light. When they got a certain distance... It was a sad day for them. They had to kill half the dogs because they loved their dogs. 
And then they ate those dogs and fed them to the other dogs. And then they kept going. When the dogs were done, they were on skis. And these are Norwegians. You know, Norwegians and cross-country skiing. They arrived a month before Scott. They started after him, but arrived a month before. And they were already back to their camp, a thousand kilometers away, 1,300 kilometers away by the time Scott got there. And you read his diary, and his hope stays strong. No matter how hard it got, his hope was still there. His dream was still there until he saw that red and blue Norwegian flag flapping. He lost all hope. His diary that day says, The worst has happened. All the daydreams must go. Great God, this is an awful place. <laughs> and then nothing was left but the, the journey back. And if you know the story on that journey, pulling that heavy sled, supplies were limited organization failed them and one by one the men began to suffer from frostbite the strongest midshipman Evans big Welshman he was the first to die and then Captain Oates in the picture he's the one standing or sitting right in the middle below Scott who stands in the back row in the middle and Captain Oates his feet are frozen and he knows he's holding them back and so he in the tent, he fills his pipe and he tells the men, he says, he says, mates, he says, I'm going to go for a walk. I may be some time. And he went out into the blizzard, minus 40, and never returned. He gave up his life so he wouldn't hold them back. He began to get desperate. But they knew if they could just reach the next depot where the supplies were stored, they still held out a bit of hope where they were supposed to meet dog teams. Their fellow British sailors had changed plans and had abandoned them. It was all on them. They kept pushing on. Finally, they pitched their tent the last time. They were one day's march from the next supply depot. Minus 40, the temperature dropped in March. And it began to blow and it didn't quit for the next 10 days. And you read... Lost hope in Captain Scott's diary. The page there on the screen is the last page of his diary. He was the last one alive. The other two had frozen in their sleeping bags already. And he wrote this. He said, We had fuel to make two cups of tea apiece and bare food for two days on the 20th. Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott. And then that scrawl at the bottom of the page, he says, for God's sake, look after our people. He was thinking of his widow, their children left behind. The lost hope. Heartbreaking. And yet I see it, a similar thing in so many lives. As tomorrow doesn't hold any promise for people. In this world, 
Hope has been stripped away by years of pandemic. We need to shine the living hope that you've been born into in the world around us. That verse says that all of this, this new birth into a living hope is ours through faith in Jesus, his crucifixion for us. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, powerful verse says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are alive in Christ into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what is your birthright in your new birth. As I mentioned, there's an inheritance involved in being part of this new family. Not only is God's gift of a new birth, but God's promise is of an eternal inheritance. An inheritance. Some of you may have been named in a will and received an inheritance. I have. The funny thing was, it wasn't anyone in my family. It wasn't a forgotten uncle or grandmother or grandfather. It was a man that, to my knowledge, I had never met him. He was the brother of a man in my church. And when he passed away to help out the family, I led his memorial service, did his funeral. And then sometime later, I found out that Wilbert had named me in his will. Not me by name. <laughs> he said, whatever pastor you can find that'll do my funeral, give him a thousand bucks. <laughs> I invested it in Bitcoin. No, I didn't. <laughs> I wouldn't be here with you if I'd done that. God has a sense of humor and he always provides. That inheritance, it coincided with the transmission blowing up on my 1997 Dodge Caravan. That van was gifted in going through transmissions. I think they were made out of plastic or something. And, you know, it was just the right amount at just the right time God provided. It's wonderful how God does that. Boy, that inheritance didn't last long. Boy, it went quick. And you know, most inheritances do, they don't last. And studies have shown that some inheritance do far more harm than good. And they pass away so quick. But what about your inheritance in this new family? You've been born into the family of God. Look at verse 4. This is speaking of those who have been given new birth. It continues to describe us. We were born also, it says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Inheritance that won't spoil or fade or pass away. It's eternal. It's permanent. It won't run out. It won't be used up. It won't be lost. Well, just as we talked about a lost hope with poor Captain Robert Falcon Scott, also in the 20th century, there was a famous inheritance. They made movies about it, but those even have been forgotten. 
There's a picture of a little girl. Her name's Barbara Hutton. Can you think of a cuter girl and her little dog? She's four years old. She's four years old. It's 1916. Her father, rich businessman, has abandoned the family. Her mother suddenly dies. Little girl is all alone in the house with her dead mother. She finds the body. Much time goes by until she's discovered. Very likely the mom took her own life in response to the heartbreak from her husband's philandering, womanizing way. And the little girl is left pretty much all alone in the world. Amazingly, she comes from a very wealthy background. Her grandfather, a guy named Frank Woolworth. (laughs) You've heard of Woolworths? The five-and-dime empire? He was one of the richest men in America. Her father, who had abandoned her, he was the co-founder of E.F. Hutton, the largest stock brokerage in the world. I remember as a boy seeing E.F. Hutton commercials on television. That's where her last name Hutton comes from. On her mom's side of the family, they weren't too poor either. On mom's side of the family, her auntie, last name Post, yeah, Post Serial. She was an heiress to that, the serial heiress. It all came together in this poor little girl. At 21, all of her inheritances came due. Woolworths, E.F. Hutton, Post Serial. The millions of 1930, today, I did the math and put it into modern money. Exactly $1 billion. Can you imagine? 21 years old, a billion dollars. That was her inheritance. That's why the country called her the poor little rich girl. Because it was so sad, her story. She had a debutante ball at 18 years old. It was the beginning of the Great Depression. And it was so rich and extravagant that the public turned on her. And she had to go to school in Europe till things calmed down. When she came back, she spent her inheritance. She never made a dollar. She only spent and spent and spent, lavishly spending. A billion dollars lasted pretty much her whole life. She went through husbands, countless affairs. I think last count she had seven husbands, including in 1940, Cary Grant. From 44 to 48, Cary Grant was her husband. But nothing ever made her happy. In all those marriages, she had one child, a son. He died in an automobile accident at 36 and broke her heart. She began to starve herself. Anorexia. That's her being carried off a plane. She's just skin and bones. And when she died in the 70s at only 66 years old, in her bank account, she still had a bank account, but it had $3,500 in it. She was almost completely broke. She lost and squandered that inheritance. In Christ, your inheritance will never be less. It will always be perfect. Perfect. Our inheritance in Christ. 
It is the glory of God that we will share. In John 17, Jesus in the garden prayed that those of you who would believe in Him would be with Him in heaven and share His glory that it had been His glory since before creation. He wanted you to be in His presence and share His glory. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 speaks of that glory that we can share. I'll begin a little before the passage to show the context of you as a child of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Did you see that? Our inheritance is coming. We are in Christ. But in this world as sojourners, there will be sufferings. But Jesus is here with us. We're sharing His sufferings. And in eternity, we're going to share in His glory. So many passages in Scripture speak of your inheritance, that you will reign with Christ. Your inheritance is glorious. But in this world, there will be difficulties. Always keep in mind that your inheritance is coming. And it is so amazing. We experience it now in the faith, hope, joy, the love that we share but it's going to be brought into fullness at the return of Christ when we go home to be with Him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that wonderful passage, the Apostle Paul speaking of the physical trials and tribulations you go through in this life. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, physically, we're wasting away. Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Your inheritance is amazing. And not only is that coming, but in this world, on our way home to be with the Lord, God is with us. And He loves us. And He's protecting us from all that will harm us. Not physically, he doesn't spare us from trials and the, and, the, and the difficult things in life. Spiritually, we are in His hands. He carries us and holds us close to His heart. God, His protection, God's protection for His children is amazing. You can go through the most difficult times with God's grace, with God's help. Peter continues in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of you as a Christian, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. That's the fulfillment of our salvation. We experience it the moment we put our faith in Jesus, but it's brought to fulfillment when we go home to be with Him receive a glorified body, and live with Him forever. Till then, God's power shields you. That power is in you through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that dwells within you. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, but this time in verse 13. And you 
also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You've received a seal, just like the ancient wax seals of the kings and the clay seals of the emperors of old days. That document was theirs under their authority and that seal could not be broken. God has placed his seal on you. You are kept. Don't believe people if they tell you, oh, you've lost your salvation. You could lose your salvation. Scripture says you are saved through faith. And you are kept by faith as well. It's not a work that you can do. If it was up to us, we would all stumble and lose our salvation. But we're kept by a faithful God whom we have trusted. We close with, as we began with a eulogy, we close with a doxology. Because it speaks of God's power to keep you until the day that we go to stand before him. The powerful doxology from the little letter of Jude, we close with this. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. As the worship team joins me on the platform, I'll close my portion in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Oh, Lord, you've given us new birth through faith in Jesus. We are alive through his resurrection. The old is gone, the new has come. We thank you, Lord, that because we serve a living Savior, we have a living hope that will never fail or fade. We have a glorious inheritance that is kept for us eternally. And Lord, we are shielded and sealed by the power of your Holy Spirit. And you will keep us from falling. Lord, not one of us in Jesus' hand will be lost. Lord, we thank you for these powerful truths. They're so encouraging. Before Peter turns his attention to the challenges of this life, he shares so wonderfully, Lord, what we have in Christ. The great blessing that we have in knowing Jesus is our Savior. Lord, may we bask in it. May we revel in it. May we live our daily lives secure in this knowledge as we love Jesus and share his love with those around us. Bless us now, Lord, as we conclude our service. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.